Simon, you'll have to cut whatever you're about to say and put it way back at the very beginning of this discussion for the listeners. Probably. No, no, I like having it at the end. So there's just no context and they have to <laughs> okay, figure sorry. it out. It's like a, a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, we do have a bad habit of, of doing this on the podcast. Do you think our listeners are as online as we are? I think they'd have to be. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to Hacks. It is a tech podcast. My name is Simon. I'm joined by Moral. Hello. And Rob. Listeners, I'm so happy to be here with you today. And Rosemary. Hello, everyone. Hey. Rosemary, you're back. Woo. I don't know what that was supposed to be. We love that you. Was like a, we a bird you. of paradise. Yes. I was going for gun sounds, and it came out like a pigeon. I don't know. <laughs> like a like a brap brap kind of? Yeah, I don't know what that was. Maybe you anyway. could queue up, like, as Rosemary introduces herself when you edit this, you could queue up like a, what's that song by Karis Wynn? Like, boop, boop, that's the sound of the police. Yeah. Yeah. And then and add some air horns on top of it just for good measure. Yeah, I, you know what? I love it. I love when you guys give me notes. It's great. <laughs> Can I step in here? Sorry, and you cut this out last time. You're just gonna keep cutting it out, so I'm gonna keep saying it. But like, massive thank you and shout out to Simon oh. at Hollow Minds, who does everything like the work, okay. the equivalent right. labor of like ten people. Okay, it's not you're, you're like equivalent free. to ten interns, Simon. Okay, wow. yes, thank you. Well, and it's a thank lot. you. Thank you, Rob, for giving us a great segue into this week's general umbrella topic, which is something that we haven't really got. I think we kind of like vaguely engaged with it at various points in various episodes, but I I don't think we've ever spent an entire episode on. And that's journalism in the 2010s. And how do you monetize it? And can you monetize it? Is it doomed? Is it not doomed? Is maybe the future brighter than ever? Spoiler alert, it is not. I have sort of a, a laundry list of like little topics to discuss, and maybe people will find these things interesting, and maybe they won't. Hopefully, they'll connect to some greater, broader, more interesting thoughts that I'm capable of providing, thanks to you know outsourcing it to y'all. Can I just uh, like cite cite a statistic that kind of helps put it in perspective about what the problem is with journalism? Absolutely. So I was reading this long uh, New York article um, about Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg in it. Uh, They talk about how, okay, okay, we're dealing with fake news, uh, which has the phenomenon of fake news has had very serious consequences in places like Myanmar, the persecution of the Rohingya people, for instance, Mm -hmm. and there are other examples. Um, So it, beyond the interference in, um, you know, the election in the U.S. and Brexit. Yeah, it's it's a serious problem. Um, so Sheryl Sandberg said, okay, so we've got over 20,000 people working now on the platform to, to filter out the fake news. So if you think about that, that's like, okay, so let's accept that it's a publishing platform, which in effect it is. So that's a it's a publication with 20,000 editors, but Facebook... All that uh, all that content comes from elsewhere, which and Facebook, Facebook pays for none of it. But massive resources are put into producing the content that gets published on Facebook as shares, and then most of the people who uh, share it also aren't paying for it. And uh, so that's the whole problem with journalism today: is everything gets sucked into this twenty-four-seven news 
platform globally. That's my uh, basic. It, definitely that number really put it in perspective to me of the scale of the resource hog that Facebook is as a content suck hole. <laughs> well, and there's other problems even on top of that with, um, and we don't, we're not necessarily going to get into this today, but there have been people noticing, you know, for instance, which which outlets Facebook decides are arbiters of truth or act as um, fact checkers on other articles. And also people who have been brought in to advise them about these issues who have turned out to be uh, even like on the right wing side of the neoliberal establishment. So I don't think that Facebook's fake news problem is going anywhere just based on these factors alone. But yes, that's a whole sort of that. I think that's a good microcosm of, of one of the problems um, that we're going to be talking about today, the epidemic of uh, so-called fake news. I mean, but I, I think um, the more broad issue that I think is sort of behind that one is the the monetization crisis in journalism. It's been well documented that legacy media organizations never adapted well to the internet age. You know, at first it was just like, well, we'll just digitize everything and it'll be free, I guess. Um, and then, you know, various attempts to make people pay for stuff that didn't work out so well. And now we're sort of at this compromise place where most major, um, you know, magazines or newspapers will give you X number of free articles per month and then put you up behind a paywall. And uh, I'm not, I don't have hard numbers on how well that's working out for them, but um, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem like it is a, it's a friendly environment for new entrants, uh, certainly. And one of the schemes that's been devised to, to try to help out with the situation is civil who if you're an average person you probably have not heard about so i guess this bears some explaining so um civil is an effort to their quote build the new economy for journalism and uh their idea was basically i mean to put it really really simply take journalism and put it on a blockchain and always a great solution yeah, I'm and I'm going to give the caveat like, once again that we're not going to take the. This is not going to be the blockchain explainer episode because we're never going to do the blockchain explainer episode. I promise. But basically, it was an effort to get people involved in a fundraising effort that would also create this infrastructure whereby fake news could be combated by you know making sure that only verified single sources of truth were involved. Now, of course, the problem, as it turns out, is that when you involve the public and you want them to get involved with blockchain and with a token sale, uh, that ends up being really complicated. And the um, the amount of engagement that they got was just not nearly what they needed for a successful token sale. And it ended up being a little bit of a, of a fiasco. It's a high profile failure of an ICO, uh, Civil. It happened to take place... Uh, at the same time as all the other all the other ICOs and the whole concept of ICO was failing. We should maybe take a second to explain what an ICO is for anyone who doesn't know. Can I go for it? Yeah, the one person who hasn't worked in this sector should actually go for it because you're probably the only one who's never participated in one indirectly or directly. No, fuck that. And when I explain it, <laughs> listeners, you'll understand exactly why I never have. So an ICO is like if you went to Kickstarter and you said, um, okay, public, I'm looking for $8 million <clears throat> to do the following. If you donate money, 
you're going to get uh, a proportional amount of my new money, call it hacks bucks. Rob coin. Rob coin. And so if you donate $20, I'll give you one Rob coin. If you donate $100, I'll give you five Rob coins. But only if we make that $8 million mark. And then once I dispense the funds, once I make the Rob coins and give them back to you, you can do whatever you want with them. It's a new currency. You could invest. You could spend your Rob coins on goods and services. You could buy a bunch of Spartan apples if you want, whatever you want to do. I think, sorry, can I just jump in and and maybe kind of um, add a few uh, caveats. I think, you know, an ICO can be really a lot, it doesn't have to be that structured, frankly. I mean, there are a lot of different ICOs that kind of, um, essentially kind of underlying the initial coin offering is the idea that you invest in a proof of, not even a proof of concept, like an idea or maybe a website, (laughs) if it's even that, or, um, and then on the idea, it's kind of like you're buying shares that don't have, or have no, um, connection necessarily or maybe they're not even tethered to the actual product itself um they will just kind of be these uh like token-based assets that may return an investment for you i think you're being a bit of a shill how am i being a shill? it's like you're printing your own doubloons and then like maybe the doubloons (laughs) will be worth something in the future or maybe it'll be just like the suitcases of money at the end of the street fighter movie they open it up and like, oh, it's yeah, but no, all but all I'm saying, all I'm saying though, bucks. it's like it doesn't have to necessarily be like, oh, if we hit our mark, you'll get your coins, like, right? It, it, like so, in Civil's case, just to kind of go back to the the example, my understanding, maybe I'm wrong and I'm missing something here, is that they actually canceled their token sale when it was apparent that they weren't going to yeah. hit their mark, yeah, yeah, and then they refunded everyone. So like every ICO is different and shitty in a different way, um, unless if you're a winner and you make a ton of money, right? So, like, so we should clarify that at least like no one got ripped off. No. In the sense that everyone got their everyone got their got refunded, which is nice. Which doesn't always happen. Um, but the the that, whole, yeah, the whole point saying. of and we're gonna explain more about what civil is, I'm sure, but yeah. um one of the main tenants what the the purported reason that they did this token sale, open it up to the public to buy <laughs> shares in the civil like ecosystem, is that it uh, open an avenue for the public, members of the public, to fund journalism, which is like really a laudable goal, right? Like I think People who uh, believe in the free press want a world where, you know, it's sort of supported in the in the public square, as it were. Now, of course, the leaky, dark, oily underside of that is that um, at the time that the civil uh, token sale was canceled, um, one company, uh, Consensus, a big blockchain, would you call it a conglomerate, um, had bought about half of an accelerator, accelerator. Yeah, like an incubator type but they they owned half of the tokens. Well, no, they were seed investors. So, so Consensus was a seed investor for about one point one million dollars. But they and, also in, invested the original five million. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing is like they. So they apparently, according to an article in Fortune magazine, um, on the civil token sale from October seventeenth of this year, um, you know, they had raised one point three million from six hundred eighty-one investors. So that's actually quite. That must. If you split that, I don't know what it run, works out to, but that's not like a bunch of, it's not like two really big investors or anything, right? Um, and then 1.1 million coming from consensus. So really like $200,000 from the looks of it from 680 investors maybe based on that number. Hmm. Um, Which is not a bad spread really. No, no. But it's, it's still subject to the same consolidation um, uh, of funding that, that the wider media ecosystem is subject to right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, 
I mean, one of the things that I find interesting with Civil, which admittedly, and I was telling Rosemary this before we started recording, like I paid very little attention to Civil because I honestly, like this is my, don't at me. Um, <laughs> I think most blockchain applications uh, generally, uh, you, you have to be very leery of putting something on a blockchain um, because I, I don't always see kind of, if there's a physical thing that you're trying to essentially kind of express on a blockchain, I think it will inevitably kind of end up failing. They have to be kind of for these digitally produced things. Um, and so, you know, I didn't pay too much attention to civil. Um, but one of the things that I do find interesting about it is that, you know, they kind of claim through, I think, on their website and elsewhere in promotional materials that they're essentially trying to like create a new economy for journalism. But really, all they're doing is buying into the the shift in the economy for journalism that has become the norm. And by this, I mean, um, it's this kind of continued assumption that like content creators essentially have to fucking hustle and be entrepreneurs to be able to get remunerated. Um, and this is really kind of demonstrative of this wider kind of um, workforce as a service. Um, and this is oh, a, dark. Yeah. Um, Very this dark. is by a, uh, a scholar named Niels Van Dorn. Um, who's got this, this, yeah, this really quite excellent kind of take on, on what he calls the workforce as a service. And I think he's actually borrowing that term from, from someone else whose name evades me at the moment. But this idea that there's kind of like this constant platform churn of, you know, these kind of precarious, generally kind of low-income service workers. And that, you know, in his examples, he's talking about Uber, et cetera, Airbnb. But I think um, in this case, it actually really applies because this is something that, and, and most of us have had some kind of communications experience, I think. Um, two of you continue to work in communications. And even in the startup economy, when you're working in communications, you're constantly reminded that you are expendable and replaceable and that there are thousands of you waiting to just write an article, blog post, whatever it is. Um, so this idea that journalists don't matter, I think, is at the heart of it. And Civil didn't really do anything to fix that assumption or perspective or take uh however you want to frame it they just kind of bought into it and said okay we're just going to put it on a blockchain so i think that was kind of a big yeah there's going to be this big pool of money investors and they can like if they like your work tip you or if they don't like your work they can spend the same uh civil tokens civil bucks to uh try to reprimand you it just intensifies the problem yeah exactly sorry rosemary and I think everything you're saying is true, but I think that in, in defense of civil and, and of consensus, um, I do think consensus is like very idealistic. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that, that the idea is decentralization is key to, to what they're trying to do in that it becomes self-regulating. I think that's the most idealistic idea about why it's on a blockchain and the token is the kind of uh, mechanism that people have voting rates. Maybe this is a good chance to actually read a little bit. So this comes to us directly from the Civil White Paper, and I'm sorry, I have to mock a little bit the um, the bio of Matthew Isles, who's credited as the author, husband, dog owner, Brooklynite. Like, man. <laughs> Come on. Dude. Opinions are my own. <laughs> yeah. Retweets are, are not endorsements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm just going to go straight from the beginning. Civil is the decent. And by the way, if we need to like unpack any of this later, we should do that. Yes. Uh, civil is the decentralized communications protocol for journalists and citizens. Like not what? anyway, kind yeah. of implying that journalists aren't citizens. Yeah, but that's whatever. weird. Okay. Uh, launched by the civil media company. The protocol limits the need for and influence of third parties like advertisers and centralized publisher conglomerates. <laughs> 
Uh, boy, this Ugh. needed an edit right away. Yeah. Can you just, I, I, I don't, I hate to nitpick, but anyway, um, I don't hate to nitpick. It's my jam. Um, the protocol aims to support independent newsrooms initially focused on producing high quality local, international, investigative, and policy journalism. In time, we envision a vast ecosystem of journalists, citizens, and developers building products and services dedicated to powering sustainable journalism throughout <sighs> the world. And I'm going to skip a little bit ahead to um, the specifics uh, from the intro. Civil is the decentralized Ethereum-based, and I'll just say Ethereum is the uh, the second biggest um, blockchain application currently running, and we're not going to get into it more than that. It's a global computer for smart contracts. Oh yeah, let's not let's not do that today. No, but that's the um, that's like quick thing on their website, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, civil Civil is the decentralized Ethereum-based marketplace that aims to introduce a new sustainable operating model for journalism predicated on two distinct features: one, economically incentivized self-governance, and two, permanent recording of authorship and content, and soon reputation. Uh, this approach promises to help revive a vitally important and struggling industry. Um, I'm just going to stop there. Uh, um, like slow clap here for civil, like really just game changer with your reputational metrics to solve so, the problem it, of journalism. So let, let's, let's break that Are down. Are you fucking for, kidding for the, me? Let's break it. Okay. Morale, maybe break down your concerns for the layman here. Okay. Well, just to go back, I think one of the first lines you mentioned of something about how they want to move towards a decentralized media operating, whatever the fuck they called it. Um, to kind of counter the centralized conglomerates of journalism. But didn't they end up partnering with the Associated Press and Forbes, according to... Rosemary, you're going to have to kind of verify this, the second one. But we were just talking about yeah, this. It, yeah, it's, it seems like they wanted to act like a bridge between those organizations and sort of smaller newsrooms. And as they say, citizen journalists. Although, frankly, what, yeah. when I hear citizen journalists, I think of like weirdos parked out in border towns like trying to pick off people <laughs> coming into the country <laughs> I, ooh, yeah i when i hear citizen journalists i feel like i hear i think of that dude that's at every like city council meeting just throwing shit at your face when you're like working for throwing the city shit with like, one hand and recording on yeah, an iphone and like surveilling you because i don't know he doesn't like bike lanes <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah, so so I think that was kind of the first concern. Then there was like a bunch of mumbo jumbo you read out, which I agree, we're not going to nitpick, but we could spend the entire time just like tearing their white paper to, to shreds, uh, which we won't do. But um, I think the other thing was kind of how their economic model was set up, um, which is extremely like not going to solve a problem. You're just going to, like I just said, is you're going to accelerate or intensify the fact that if you're a content creator, if you're a citizen journalist, if you want to call, use your own terms, you're essentially just like, you're measuring out your life in articles that are like bought. And then if someone doesn't like your work, they down, they downvote you. And then, you know, you don't get, you don't fetch as much money. Right. Like how, how does it work when, if you were to public, if you were to come up with a piece of, um, you know, an editorial or a piece of journalism that presents a counterintuitive yeah. uh, opinion that is nevertheless correct, you know, and is well reported. Yeah. Um, does that mean you're, is there some mechanism there to make sure that you get, that you get, you know, funded and seen anyway? I, that, how would you even do that? Uh, yeah, I think you get tipped, you get yeah. micro, micro payments, yeah. right? Yeah. Micro payments. Yeah. It's bullshit. Yeah, it is. So, uh, uh, one of the things at the heart of civil that I find confusing and 
this is sort of a bigger topic than I, I really want to get into, but I think we have to a little bit, is this notion of decentralization as being necessarily good. Mm. Um, and I think that they're one of the problems in things like civil is I think they kind of fetishize decentralization as a way to fix problems that I'm not sure decentralization is really equipped to fix. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like uh, when I hear about um, Apple having to comb, th- having to hire human editors to comb through news feeds to filter out fake news. It's like, well, it makes me feel like, yeah, yeah. It, it tells me that the algorithms aren't working, and it tells me that these these mechanisms that are supposed to self-regulate, it feels like they keep coming back to old formulations because actually they worked quite well. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um... I guess the thing that really kind of I find frustrating and interesting at the same time is that, yeah, it's there's this kind of assumption with anything to do with creative work in the new economy, if you want to put it that, or the platform economy, on-demand, sharing, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize it, that, like, creative work is not labor. And so it shouldn't be treated as such, right? And, like, you see people in the tech world kind of going on about this every now and then where it's like, oh, I'm just going to use Upwork and like essentially find a race to the bottom to get the service I need. And in that case, as you know, creative work can be kind of a loose uh, category, I think. But um, especially with content creators and like journalism and anything to do with writing, um, it's often less like, yeah, we can just like, replace you with, you know, someone else or an AI will do it eventually because you're not that, it's not that difficult a job. And this is something that at least the three of us have heard uh, at one point in time, um, yes. expressed to us directly. Um, and so this idea that there is no valuation to the work, I think, um, and that therefore it's not labor, um, really plays into this logic, I think. But my, I'm, can I ask an unpopular question, which is, is journalism creative work? Like, I think, yes. Ju- well, yeah. journalism has always been, you know, you, are, you need to produce like a story about X today. Yeah. In the same way that like being a bricklayer is like, you need to lay... 200 bricks today. Yeah, but I, I, no? I think... Unless, except in like super rare Bob Woodward style cases. I think the difference is not so much um, the nature of the work. I don't think that's changed. I think it's the... Um, it's. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that's changed in so many other industries. It's job security. Mm-hmm. It's compensation not rising in, you know, in accordance with all other factors. One of the things that, um, you know, we were just talking about journalism as labor. And one of the other things I really wanted to talk, to talk about today is um, this new wave of uh, layoffs and closures we've seen over the last six, nine, 12 months and, and longer. Can, can I just jump in and, and we just talk about decentralization a bit? Because I think otherwise, um, just, to, just to close this part off, because I, I don't think we explained it. And yeah, again, like I'm going to defend consensus and civil. <laughs> just just the, I think the problem is they're very abstract ideas and they're, and they're laudable goals. But they're very far in the future, let's say. It, but at the same time, what these solutions are is that they they actually follow the basic characteristics of the internet, which is decentralized. There's nobody controlling the internet. That's what a blockchain is in Bitcoin, to give the best example, the most successful example, arose spontaneously. There's no marketing department for Bitcoin. So all these other projects are trying to follow along um, and that's what decentralization means it's self-regulating so that's civils makes sense from that perspective mm-hmm. but i think it's just still so early that uh we're still going to have these uh, hybrid solutions 
I guess what I don't what I don't see is yes, I understand what's good about decentralization and I understand what's good about self-regulation, but I don't understand how those forces interact with journalism to fix the problems of funding and to fix the problem of uh, of, of you know deliberate misinformation. I just don't see it. And I find the idea about decentralization and civil um, really interesting because um, civil is uh, sort of a, a funding model, if you want to call it that, for um, journalism. But it's also sort of a, an organization um, that aims to uh, um, ensure the quality of the journalism that you see on the civil network. And Rosemary and other people, please tell me if I'm wrong about any of this. But um, yeah, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that um, if you want to be a newsroom that distributes your news through civil, you have to sign on to a document called the Civil Constitution. Mm-hmm. And basically what it what it is, I haven't read the whole thing, but the nutshell um, is that um, <clears throat> you have to promise to follow good journalistic practices. Uh, and um, newsrooms uh, adherence to the Constitution is going to be overseen by some sort of um, central board, um, such that if, if I see something that um, I feel doesn't adhere to that Constitution on a, on a civil publication, um, I can go to that board and basically raise a grievance. Um, and it's also the board's job to uh, handle um, updates to the Constitution over time. So, you know, the, the, at, at a, a basic level, you know, everything you see on this, um, quote unquote, decentralized journalism platform, um, the parameters of it are determined by, you know, a single document that's in the hands of um, a, a board of humans. Right. And I, I find that a little bit concerning. Um, you know, I'm sure that the, the, the initial board members are really on the up and up. You know, maybe they come from, uh, you know, old um, journalistic institutions and they're they're really serious journalists. But I don't know if we can guarantee that that will be the case in the future, especially as we've talked about on this podcast before. You know, there are certain elements of the Internet that are really good at working the system um, and weaseling, weaseling themselves into places where, um, you know, perhaps uh, it, it would help to have some oversight of their activities. Well, and if they do come from those laudable old legacy organizations, many of those organizations are very compromised. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Washington Post is owned by Amazon. Um, you know, lots of lots of these big, um, old, you know, old venerable institutions have like sketchy ties to foreign governments um, or particular special interests. Like not to sound like I've got a tinfoil hat on, but lots of them don't have great records about covering particular issues. So if they do end up um, crafting those constitutions or having, you know, power over, you know, downvoting particular types of content, you're sorry, you're going to end up with the same sorts of problems, no matter how fancy and quote unquote decentralized uh, hashtag blockchain your system is. Yeah, good point. Look, look, the MSM, the mainstream media, they're just run by a bunch of leftists, right? Who? (laughs) Right. Yeah. These liberals. These liberals. You just can't get the truth out there. I mean, exactly. Like Saudi Arabia has a great human rights record, and I think the public deserves to know about it. You know, my question is: Are birds real? But no, I think. I mean, I, yeah, I think those are really good points. Um, I just want to put a little, little note. Can we not? I mean, I don't want to frame things in like decentralized versus centralized because I, I really. I mean, we could spend a whole episode and more on kind of the ontopistemological kind of implications of thinking through the, what decentralized. The what implications? Yeah. The 
the onto-epistemological implications of um, the concept of decentralization. Could you could you just translate that one for for the dummies like me? <laughs> well, like call into question kind of the nature of what decentralization means um, and how it operates to kind of you know in the world if you want to put it that way. So what I mean by that is like I don't know. I think if we think about it in terms of it's a distributed platform, um, then you know because it's not really a centralized board that you can raise your grievance to, right? It's a distributed board made up of participants or however, whatever the term is they use. Um, so that's not a fair characterization, I think. It's also not fair to say that they're fully decentralized because I, you know, we have to call that into question as well. That's all I'm saying. Good point. So I don't, I don't want to spend an entire episode on civil or blockchains yeah. because we'll just bore everyone to fucking death. I would like to, one of the things that sort of prompted this topic um, was the layoff of the entire editorial staff over at uh, an outlet called Mike, who, um, that's M-I-C, and you may or may not have known Mike.com. I never really read their stuff. They were specifically aimed at millennials, and they were one of those many outlets who, in the past couple of years, were urged to, quote, pivot to video, which... um, you know, is exactly what it sounds like, you know, a, a real mo- a move to try to generate more video-based content rather than text-based or audio-based content, um, which, of course, implies a specific type of, you know, a specific hiring strategy um, that is quite distinct. But as it turns out, their pivot to video could not save them. The Bustle Media Group purchased Mike and, like I say, lay off, laid off their entire staff. A couple interesting wrinkles about this. I wasn't sure who Bustle Media Group was. So just a, a, a quick, a, a quick uh, description. Bustle, this is from Wikipedia. This is serious journalism here. Uh, Bustle is an online American women's magazine founded in August 2013 by Brian Goldberg. Bustle is designed for women and, and positions news and politics alongside articles about beauty, celebrities, and fashion trends. And by September 2016, they had 50 million monthly readers over at Bustle.com. Uh, Brian Goldberg, I believe, is also the one who uh, published, uh, who uh, rebought Gawker. Uh, so look for, look for the Bustle relaunch of Gawker at some point. Hmm. But uh, also a little bit of a controversial character if you go... Uh, Go go go! Googling around for his Facebook history, he has some uh, interesting opinions about things. Anyway, um, the reason that the Mike story is, is so interesting is so, like I say, they 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 laid off the entire editorial staff. Uh, not very long ago, Mike had voted to form a union, and apparently, one of the more popular ways to get around um, a union if you if you're looking to buy up. Um, a media entity is to lay off the entire staff. Hmm. Um, Almost in the as process. if you would like to bust the union. Almost, yeah. Um, yeah, that happened at uh, Gothamist. Uh, yes, if I'm not mistaken, and also the LA version mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, yeah. So it is a uh, practice, common practice. Yeah. So we're seeing a bit of a war going on where there is this new wave of unions being formed digital media unions um i know that uh vice for instance has a union vox of all places has a union uh and mike had a union but it did not save them in the end and uh i know rob there was a tweet you wanted to talk about about this okay so i i saw this tweet come across my feed uh and the guy who tweeted it is ryan chittam not shittam 
Chittam with a C-H. Um, his bio says, journalist, X-I-C-I-J, X-C-J-R, X-W-S-J, former co-editor, best business <coughs> writing series. So there's a lot of X on his bio, and you're about to find out why. X going to give it to you. <laughs> he, he tweeted about these layoffs. Let's be real. Maybe not the best idea to form a union when your employers and their investors have spent millions and millions of dollars employing you and still have a burn rate. That's now at least two newsrooms, DNA Info and Mike, that overreached by organizing. Love to taste those boots. <laughs> love, yeah. love the bosses. Wow. So you know, when let's is be it real. acceptable to organize? Like when your boss tells you that it's okay, we're yeah. in the clear. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem. It's incredibly hard for these employees who, as we've talked about earlier, like they're incredibly precariously employed um, for them to get the kind of leverage to organize and form a union. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Vice was able to do it, to be honest. They're sort of the er um, one of these companies. I'm surprised that Vox was able to do it. That's actually the one that really surprised me. You think Ezra's not pro-union? The, mm, the policy they, research actually... says. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I mean, in a sense, this is kind of, uh, I'm going to go in a direction that is, is kind of tangentially related to this and, and kind of something we've been talking about on the side, not on the show, um, offline, I guess. But um, it's this notion that, like, unions and organizing and, like, it's all part of this ethical capitalism shit. Right. Where you have these kind of big corporations um, who, you know, are otherwise quite evil, but, you know, they're out there saying, yeah, it's great. Go ahead. Have a union. You know, we're going to tell you to do it. And then it, it's just it's just a lot of bullshit. Sorry, do you just edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute, Morale, are, are you arguing that workers shouldn't form unions? No, I'm arguing that there's like of course Ezra's going to be pro union because it looks good for him to be pro union but he's not but actually I mean, pro union which is why i'm saying just cut right, it of out course, yeah. yeah just cut this out sorry Hill no just i'm not woke cutting it out i refuse to, i refuse to cut it out <laughs> so you got to cut it out sorry our our child just woke up and uh, i'm very concerned about what she's going to get up to in her well, room well why don't you go check on her well she's awake okay. so like um, so i'm going to exit this conversation and let you three continue if that's okay okay just okay. keep it quiet in there yeah I'll go okay play with her. okay all right, so um, I do want to go back and talk about um, Mike, though, and preface this by saying that I am very sad about the layoffs. They did a great thing by organizing, um, and it's too bad that it didn't work out for them. But on the other hand, have either of you read uh, anything on the Mike network lately? Have you been keeping up with your, your Mike feeds? I mean, I don't think I'm really the target audience. Well... I remember Mike from their days as like a Facebook first video publisher. Um, and uh, God knows I never read them, but I would always sort of see their videos as I was scrolling through the Facebook feed. And the videos, because they, they all have subtitles, right? So you can kind of get a, a sense of what's going on in them without sound. And the, the yeah. videos would always be like, uh, uh, President Obama wants to pass Obamacare but the Republican senators say they won't vote for it. And then like the policy mic logo at the end. So I feel like, are they, were they really doing the best job? For example, here's a video that I saw on um, policy mic today. Um, headline is, uh, what if only young people voted in the midterms? Oh shit. It's one minute and 26 seconds long. So they really go deep. And the, uh, 
the conclusion is that the Democrats would have flipped the Senate. What? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, well, and I think you're you're pointing out like the obvious criticism that sort of flies in the face of that very dumb tweet you you read out, which is that like maybe the clo- the you know maybe Mike wouldn't have had to shudder the way that it did had its overlords not succumbed to very dumb advice like pivot to video, which, as far as I know, is a strategy that hasn't worked out for anyone. And Simon, for a bit of context, that was Facebook that suggested that this was the way to go for your news, uh, of course. news delivery. Was, was, uh, it always comes back to Facebook. Well, because it's all about that engagement rate, right? Like, And, you know, part of this problem is, like, there's no good way to sort of quantify good journalism right like in fact the most in-depth journalism you know when new york times produces the fifteen thousand word um story that goes in depth on like political corruption or or whatever nobody reads the damn thing right so the really the things that people click on and like and share are incredibly frivolous uh short stories you know text stories or videos like the the top story on mike.com right now I'm sorry to keep punching down on them, but this this is the last time I'll do it. Their headline uh, is, quote, me voting in 2016 versus me voting in 2018 meme reminds us who we've become since Trump was elected. And this Ooh. is, I mean, it's it, like I, exactly I, what you expect it is. It's the BuzzFeed style, like, uh, we're going to repost these memes that people tweeted. And I, I think it goes without saying, like, I don't think any of us blames the journalists involved. No for the type of, of, of content they are being asked to produce. That's clearly coming. It's clearly a, a, a top down sort of decision. Um, but sort of a, another sort of content move I wanted to talk about, um, because I think it might be a signpost for a very different sort of direction is, um, what's happened with teen Vogue. Because I, I, I do, I don't even know if they have a print edition anymore. Do they, do we know? Uh, has anyone seen a Teen Vogue magazine? I, I don't there? see it, it when matter. I when I scan the Teen magazines rack, <laughs> as, as I often do. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I haven't looked at a newsstand in years, but uh, yeah, there you go. So it might as well not exist. Um, but anyway, a lot of brands have tried to become woke, in especially in the Trump era, because you know there's clicks to be to be harvested. But Teen Vogue has really gone like a whole other level to this to the extent that they're bringing in people like Kim Kelly to do like explainer articles about Karl Marx and anarchism and, and, you know, union organizing and like actual left topics, like way to the left of, um, of the, what's thought of as, as mainstream discourse. Is that, is that because of certain journalists like Lauren Duca at Teen Vogue? Yeah, that's, that's what I think as well. It's like she, when she really blew up, um, I think she became sort of a, a celebrity that the the publication was able to rally around. Well, I think it's more than that, though. I think that they there. I mean, I think that there has to be more than that. There has to be some someone. There has to be people at the top saying, "Hey, there's an underserved market here. Um, we this is like we could really push this further in a way that I can't imagine that all their advertisers are super happy about like." every every single one of these topics or they just don't care because there's clicks to be found but they're like really out on a limb and i wonder if we're going to see more um more publications more willing to take chances on the kind of content and the kind of topics they're they're willing to talk about if they sense there's an underserved niche 
I agree with what you're saying. I think the the key difficulty is, um, you know, getting the signal that there's a certain underserved niche, right? Like all of these pivots that various news organizations have done, each one is so high risk, right? Because you're you're gambling on the future of your company, basically, right? So it, I, I think there's a lot of risk aversion and and wanting to just do what other people, what other organizations have done, uh, in order to keep um, your company's head above water. Right. And so it what and that's why I say that Lauren Duca was so, I think, key um, for Teen Vogue's pivot is that, you know, it she came, can you maybe refresh people's memories as to who she is. Yeah. So happened? Rosemary, maybe help me out, because it seems like so long ago <laughs> that she was like a media fixture of it. Like she was the editor of Teen Vogue um, who started, I guess she started by like tweeting um, a, a lot of very. Uh, I don't know what you would say, like very leftist, very like, um, strong feminist opinions, um, doing op-eds, uh, in her own publication and then, uh, going on cable news and becoming sort of a, a more mainstream figure with that, uh, very strong, very eloquent, uh, point of view. Um, and, uh, I, I think a lot of people have sort of really latched on to what she was saying, uh, and the way she was saying it, um, sort of packaged for people like us, like younger people who are sort of dissatisfied with, uh, the way we see society going. Yeah, she galvanized a, a point of view. She's very good at expressing a point of view, and and yeah, she had. She, there's an audience there for it. Um, and uh, I'm just going to add that um, Condé Nast stopped the print edition of Teen Vogue in 2017, and that was yeah. that was after they had gone from uh, nine issues a year to being a, a quarterly. Now, now it's just online only. Right. Lauren Duca was also the one who had that skirmish on Fox News, right? Or Tucker Carlson made some demeaning remarks, and she had a, a really priceless reaction. Google it, folks. It's it's <laughs> it's not hard to find. One of the last things I, I sort of wanted to bring up is, um, you know, when I think about the arc of recent history and digital media, I think we can't uh, understate the importance of the Gawker lawsuit. There was a, a, a big expose, multi-part expose in the Miami Herald this week. I don't know if you guys saw this about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it's a huge story about, you know, corruption and the assault of underage women. And it goes all the way to the top. Um, you know, the, the Clintons are involved and Trump is involved. And there's a lot of really um, a really a lot of really big players involved and Epstein has not been uh, a figure at the center of mainstream discourse however he was someone who was written about a lot in Gawker when they were still around they were really on that beat ever since Gawker went down like there's been a real <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, I feel there's been a lot of timidity about covering now that there's the precedent that you know if you have enough money and you, you if you've got a wealthy backer like a Peter Thiel for instance you can pretty much unilaterally um, take down a media organization, even one that's like pre- pretty decently funded, as long as you have an axe to grind and enough funding on your side, which had never, re- there wasn't really a whole lot of precedent for that. So I think that's sort of another crisis of journalism that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, I think partially because it, it used to be that um, journalists tended to represent organizations that had enough clout and enough funding to fight those legal battles. And they don't anymore, right? Like they're coming from places like Gawker. And Gawker was a big organization at one time, right? But, um, you know, if you write something unfavorable about Peter Thiel in like Mike.com, for instance, um, Mike.com is not going to exist for very long, probably. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Peter Thiel, 
uh, go fuck yourself. Ah, you can't get me. There's nothing to take, Peter Thiel. Exactly. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> also, we can thank Florida's libel laws for the, for the demise of Gawker, too. Yeah, uh, I think it is. It's a perfect storm of yeah, local libel laws as well as just one example of what happens when you have this immense concentration of wealth in just a few hands. That when you happen to run afoul of one of those sets of hands, then you know bad things will happen. And now that I think of it, the whole Gawker saga could be seen as like a, a you know a foreshadowing of populism's rise generally because it, it, it the jury that uh, awarded um, Hulk Hogan that massive settlement 100 million dollars or whatever um put gawker out of business that was a resentment against elites basically against new york elites it was a florida jury that uh, thought that poor hulk hogan's reputation had been (laughs) (laughs) poor poor down home boys like hulk hogan (laughs) (laughs) had been disturbed and his feelings were hurt so even though the mantra is supposed to be facts don't care about your feelings true turns out feelings are the most important of all yeah, R.I.P. R.I.P. Gawker. Anyway, I thought you, I thought you meant, meant R.I.P. the Hulk. <laughs> oh no. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really looking to get to any like solid conclusions today. I just wanted to sort of bring up a bunch of a bunch of issues, disparate issues, kicking around in this, um, in this space because it's a huge topic, and it's not like we're going to solve journalism today. Um, but uh, I, I will say that. Um, to to say one thing that is like slightly hopeful i do think that you know small publications have had a lot of success with sort of more i'm going to call it traditional crowdfunding but it's really not you know it's a tradition going back about 5 years i'm talking about you know patreon and gofundme etc you know i think a lot of individual content providers and small units have had a lot of success with that um it's clearly a lot more than say civil had with their sort of more ambitious attempt i remember reading from journalists like sarah jones who wanted to contribute to civil but couldn't figure out how and these are not dumb people you know that these are people who would have happily contributed to a traditional crowdfund but uh couldn't couldn't figure out the token sale i do think that there is some life in those in those slightly more traditional models kind of tough to adapt that of course for like bigger newsrooms because there's so much capital uh, investment required. Yeah, I was saying that before that uh, that's one of the reasons why civil failed is that they wanted to a- attract the, the everyday uh, person who's interested in supporting a news organization. And um, but in fact, the whole token space, uh, as we explained it before, was was um, basically juiced by speculators. And because their their target audience wasn't speculators, but average people and the average people couldn't figure out how to how to buy uh the tokens so it, that's one of the main reasons yeah. it failed someone counted out the um steps you have to take in order to uh purchase a some amount of civil tokens and there were actually like 44 distinct hoops you had to jump through um before you actually Jesus. had tokens in your wallet like it was crazy and Not they're promising the to come back with a simpler way to do yeah. it yeah i mean Hopefully this is something that people actually learn from and, you know, but I, I think I, ha- I have to imagine that the vast majority of people who read the first three paragraphs of the um, of the civil white paper, assuming they were able to get past all the jargon uh, because there's so much of it, if they were still interested, they were like, great, where do I put my credit card info? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that. Anyway, uh, I wanted to introduce all these issues because I feel like they're going to crop up in... You know, it's. I feel like we're 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 building. You know, 
a, a stable of concerns, things that are going to crop up in future episodes. And uh, I think journalism is a is a huge sort of dimension of uh, why everything is so messed up right now. And uh, wanted to introduce that with this episode, and then hopefully these things will crop up, and maybe one day we will even come up with the solutions. We we won't. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Just don't come. Squad goals. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately, Morale has had to exit us um, to uh, go take care of the Hellspawn, but uh, she can be found on Twitter at Snootlet. You can find me there at Hollow Minds. Rob is at RG Scherf, and Rosemary is at Rose M. Heather. And do visit us at hacks.fm. And of course, rate and review us over at iTunes. We don't charge you for stuff, so. You consider taking a few seconds. Rating this like podcast throwing... five stars is the only thing that will save journalism. Do your exactly. do your due diligence, listeners. Exactly. And uh, that's about it from us, unless anyone else has any parting shots. I'm all out of shots. Thanks, listeners, for spending time with us once again. <laughs> yes, thank all you. Right. Okay, uh, I need to go. There is a hell spawn here. You right want to say hi to Simon? Want to say hi? Hi. Under that magazine rack